Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning to the Gospel of Mark, and we're turning to Mark chapter 11, and you'll find this on page 847 in the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be reading back at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, You remember last time we were together, we were highlighting how... uh, these sections are all interwoven, but we're trying to break them up into chunks uh, to give uh, the attention uh, that it needs. But uh, we want to begin our reading at verse 1, and this morning we're looking at verses uh, especially 11 through 19. This is God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Well, sometimes you might be listening to uh, a song or you might be uh, watching a uh, a movie or reading a story and there will be a certain building of energy, a certain anticipation that is growing in the story or in the music that you're listening to. And you might expect it to uh, come to fruition or come to its climax. 
uh, in that piece of music or in that story only for it to make a detour uh, and to turn in a different direction. And it develops in a different way or it builds the anticipation even further. And as we turn back in Mark's gospel, uh, it feels that way because last time we were looking at how when Jesus came into Jerusalem, how he was doing something in a very public way to make himself known as the promised king. He came in to Jerusalem riding on a colt, uh, doing so in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. He was presenting himself to the people of God as the promised king. And not only did he do something very uh, public and very obvious in that, uh, in that act, but when he did it, the people recognized it. You remember how they were spreading their cloaks and their garments before him. And not only that, uh, signifying that they were treating him as a king, but they were saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Their minds, their attentions turned to the idea of the kingdom of David. Their, their, their whole uh, hosannas, their, their cries of help, Lord, were really filled with praise that God's promise of a coming kingdom was coming to fruition. And so now as the promised king is coming to Jerusalem, he's coming to his own people with all this energy building up. You might think that now is the time when the fireworks are going to go. Now is the time when we're going to see that kingdom manifest in a very public way. But when you turn to Mark's gospel, what does Mark say? He says that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, in verse 11, that he would then went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he looked and then left and went to Bethany. All this building of energy about the king coming to Jerusalem. And then it tells us that when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple the meeting place of God and his people. He goes to the temple, the very center of the covenant community. And when he gets there, he looks and then leaves. But this morning we want to see that that looking around was not an incidental or an insignificant detail. It's a very significant detail because it's going to highlight for us that everything that comes afterwards is not a spontaneous outburst. It's not an irrational action that is being taken here. When Jesus looks around the temple, he's assessing the situation. He's looking at the condition of the people of God and of their worship and of their temple worship. And everything that comes after this is on the basis of what he sees. In other words, it's a thought through evaluation and assessment on the people of God. This morning we are looking at the time when Jesus came to the temple and when he drove out, when he tried to purge the temple of its corruption in order to reestablish purity in the worship of God. And what we want to see this morning is that because Jesus has come to purge all corruption, we are to look to him ultimately to make us pure. We want to think about these verses in a couple of different ways. We want to think of the judgment of Jesus and the judgment of the religious authorities. Or we could say it another way, we want to think about the cleansing of the temple and the contempt 
at Jesus's uh, actions. Well, first uh, we have uh, what Jesus does in cleansing the temple. But before we even get there, Mark tells us about another incident. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He looks around at the situation at the temple and he will come back to the temple. But between those two incidents, we're given this another uh, event that takes place. It is when Jesus curses a fig tree. It tells us there in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus uh, was uh, hungry. Again, another emphasis about uh, the, the reality of Jesus being fully human that he was like us, uh, uh, subject to hunger uh, and to all the weaknesses of a human constitution. But Jesus here, as he was looking for something to eat, he sees a fig uh, tree and he goes looking to find figs on it. But instead, he only finds the leaves. Now, if we're going to understand what is happening here, the branches of a fig tree sprout buds that would remain undeveloped through the winter. But those buds would grow into green knots and they would mature along with the leaves. The point is, is that if you see leaves on a fig tree, you would assume there would be buds or there would be figs at some stage of maturation. So even when it says it was not the season for figs, we're to understand that to mean it was not the season for ripe figs. It was not the season when people would enjoy eating figs. But if you see leaves on a fig tree, there should be the buds or the figs at some stage of maturation. And here, uh, that was not the case. But Mark does not include this detail simply to tell us about uh, a fig tree that didn't produce any figs. Mark is including this uh, account because it really represents something more. It is really Jesus enacting a parable uh, in, in what his actions are conveying. Jesus here is conveying something of God's judgment on fruitlessness and particularly the fruitlessness of God's own people. In the Old Covenant scriptures, many prophets would compare the people of Israel with a fig tree. You can see this in the prophet Hosea, the prophet Joel, the prophet Micah, but also in the prophet Jeremiah. And if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 8, you'll read these words. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves have withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. That was Jeremiah's denouncement. That was God's denouncement on the people of God, where he expected to see fruit in their lives, spiritual fruit, some heart of change in them that has responded to God's grace. Instead, God sees no fruit, no change, no repentance, no obedience, but rather desertion, idolatry, adultery, and so 
God's word comes exposing just how wrong this is by using that comparison of a fig tree with no figs. So when Jesus here pronounces this judgment on the fig tree, he's saying this is wrong. When you see something that gives evidence outwardly of being fruitful, but internally there is no fruit. Underneath the surface, it's still barren. And the people of Israel were like that. Outwardly, they went through all the motions. Outwardly, they were conducting their worship. They were doing that even in Jeremiah's time. They were coming into the house of God. And they were celebrating that they had peace. But, outward, but inwardly, they were still living idolatrous lives. There was a disconnect between how they presented themselves and what they really were. And Jesus here is going to use this enacted parable to carry that idea forward and to say the same thing is true now. Outwardly, the leaves are giving evidence or suggesting that there's fruitfulness in the people. But inwardly, there is no fruit. Not only does it say that the disciples heard these words, but even as you look at the very arrangement in Mark's gospel here, you see how Mark is trying to help us see the importance of this cursing of the fig tree. Why does Mark include this in his account? It's because the disciples remembered it. But more than that, it's because of what it's conveying. It serves as the bookends around this whole cleansing of the temple incident. The cursing of the fig tree is meant to picture what is happening with the cleansing of the temple. It is a pronouncement of judgment against fruitlessness. And so here, the disciples remembering this, is, it, is, it is something that is going to shape the way the disciples understand the work of Jesus. Their understanding, Jesus' words, have a greater meaning than simply this uh, fig tree itself. So it is actually anticipating the judgment of God on this corruption of worship in the temple. But then we come eventually uh, to the temple itself. It says in verse 15, when they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, so he comes back to the temple, he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, if you read that by itself, you might think that Jesus just simply sounds like an angry or an explosive person. Why is he doing this? But he is enacting this judgment against the temple worship. Because it has been proven to be, it has been shown to be unfruitful to God. It is not a worship that is pleasing in God's sight. That's one of the things that is really startling about this whole incident. Is, is that even in the very worship of God, it can actually be provoking the anger of God. The people of Israel were worshiping. But their worship was not pleasing in God's sight. And so when Jesus comes back to the temple, it's not an irrational explosion of anger. It is an assessment of their corruption that is now needing to be purged. 
He drives out the money changers and uh, the, the, the pigeon sellers and he's dry, overturning the tables. Why is Jesus doing this? He's rejecting it. He's rejecting the worship that is being conducted here in the temple. And he is doing this uh, for a, a couple of different reasons. When we think about the people of God, they would assemble in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of worship, especially during the festivals. And when that happened, the population would just swell up, much like PEI in the summer. But in Jerusalem, one historian says that the population would go from about 25,000 to about 150,000. It would just swell with people. And when people came for those religious festivals, they had to bring sacrifices with them. And when they came with those sacrifices, they also had to pay a temple tax. Now, you can imagine how difficult it would be to travel to Jerusalem if you don't live in Jerusalem, to bring along your animal sacrifice and your temple tax with you. It would be much easier to buy your animal at Jerusalem and then to offer your sacrifice and to exchange your foreign currency into the currency that is accepted by the temple authorities there. And so this is what happened. People would purchase their animals and then offer their sacrifice. But what happened recently in this time period was that the high priest Caiaphas made a decision. This used to happen at a place called the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. It was outside of the temple, but it got relocated into the temple precincts. And then what was happening is, is the people were buying and selling. They were exchanging their, their currencies. They were buying their animals in the temple court. The temple court, the temple was consisted of different areas. You had the temple of the priests, the court of the priests, which was really only designated as a sanctuary for those who served as priests. Only the priests could go there. You had the, the court of the Israelites. That's where the men of Israel would be who were not priests. And then more broadly on the outer side surrounding that, those uh, places was what we would call the court of the Gentiles. And that large area was really an area that was devoted to welcoming the nations. This is where the nations can gather. The Gentiles too can worship the God of Israel. They can come and although they are far off, they can still be included in. But what Caiaphas made was this decision to say, move the animals from the Kidron Valley and put them in there, the court of the Gentiles. And then it'll all work much more efficiently. Why did he do this? Because it was more convenient. And so this whole thing changes. But what is happening in the process is that it's obstructing the purposes of God. It's actually interfering with the people being able to come and to worship God. The nations are not being allowed a place in the temple itself to pray. You think of even this past week with everyone sawing their trees and trying to clear up their grounds and how all the, the roads and the sidewalks are obstructed with all these branches and debris and trunks. It's hard to get around, to drive or to walk. There's things obstructing your way. Well, this is what was happening in the temple. 
people were putting things in the temple and preventing people from being able to gather for worship and actually obstructing God's purposes and design. So in addition to the whole idea of the exchanging of currencies and making a profit on other people, there's this idea that what was happening was all being shaped more by convenience than according to God's design. The people who are offering worship assume that what they're doing is fine, but what they're doing shows no fear of God's will themselves. Sometimes we might think that the problem in the world is is that unbelievers don't fear God. They don't acknowledge God because they think, well, I'm a good person and so all is well, or because God loves everyone and so he won't judge. But the problem of not fearing God is a problem particularly in the church because in the church is where people can take on this assumption that all is well because I'm active in the worship of God's people. I'm part of something. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Just as people did in Jeremiah's day. They thought they were safe because they had the temple. Babylon is not going to destroy us. We have the temple. And in the same way, in Jesus' day, the people were very confident that they were well with God because they were the people of the temple. And here Jesus is exposing that wrongful notion by saying that what you're doing is displeasing in God's sight. Jesus says there in verse 17, he says, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's what God's design has always been. He's quoting there from the prophecy of Isaiah that God would gather in. He would show his favor on the Gentiles. Foreigners would come to the Lord's house and he would accept their sacrifices of those who draw near to him. Uh, the, The temple would be then for all the peoples. That was God's design. But what had happened was an interfering of that design. But Jesus not only uh, shows that they had ignored God's design of making it a house of prayer for the nations, but he says there, you have made it a den of robbers. Do you remember that language? That's the language that Jeremiah used. A den of robbers is, you think of what robbers would do. They go out and they steal. They commit their crimes. But when they come back to their den they find themselves, believe themselves to being safe. No one can penetrate the den. We are safe in here until we next venture out to commit our next crime. But Jesus, as Jeremiah was saying, is is that the people are doing that. They think they're safe as long as they're in the temple. But then they go out and they live however they want. And then they rush back into the temple and they think, but we're good. We have, we have the temple. And so they actually said that, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Nothing can happen to us because of the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah said, your temple will be destroyed. And now when Jesus comes to the temple to purge it of its corruption... Jesus is saying history is repeating itself. 
because you think you have security, but your security is in the wrong thing. You're living divorced from God's will. You're not acknowledging his designs. And what you're really living for is your own comfort. There is no fear of God in you. How do we know if if we are guilty of that false security? How do we know if we aren't fearing God ourselves? One is whether we allow God's word to search us. Whether we are willing to come under God's word and to be subject to it. Another way of examining ourselves is to say, is there, is there a bifurcation between how I think about what I do on Sunday and how I live my life? Does the way that I come to worship have any influence on shaping the way that I approach my life? Or do I split those two in two different worlds? That's a dangerous thing. Because if we believe and honor God and fear God, then he should be Lord over all of our life. And so here, Jesus is exposing them as being like a den of robbers themselves, living without any fear of God and putting their trust in a false security. Jesus then goes on and says they are provoking God's anger, even in the very act of worshiping, because they're despising God's revelation. So there is the cleansing of the temple. Why is Jesus doing this? Because there's fruitlessness in the people of Israel. What's the problem with it? They have, de- they have denied God's design. And they have catered to their own convenience and preferences. They outwardly are showing signs of fruitfulness. But underneath it's barren. Just like a fig tree. And as a result, just as Jesus pronounced a curse on that fig tree... Jesus' judgment will come upon this temple worship as well. But there's the reaction of Jesus' judgment in the uh, contempt of the religious authorities. In verses 18 and 19, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. When the chief priests and the scribes became aware of what Jesus had done in that outer court of the temple, they hear what is happening. He's obstructing the, the process. People aren't able to get through now. Jesus has prevented that practice from continuing. He's driving people away. The money changers aren't able to do their work. Tables are being overturned. When they hear this, rather than taking that message and responding to it that what we're doing is not right instead they become angry and want to destroy Jesus they want to put him to death and what that means is really they were wanting to put to death the very one who came to purify the temple itself the very one who would purify the people of God because Jesus didn't come into this world simply to expose sin Jesus came into this world to purge sin, to remove sin, to bear the penalty of sin himself. That's what the Old Testament always said. It said the purpose of Christ's coming was to purify the sons of Levi, to refine them like silver and gold. Those who are contaminated, those who have been corrupted by sin, 
would be purged of their sins and be made pure in God's sight. Jesus came not only to show us the problem, but to be the solution by bearing the sins of his people and by giving them a new heart through his spirit. So it says in Titus chapter 3, he saved us not by our works, uh, but rather by his righteousness, by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, the scriptures teach us that even our best deeds are corrupt. Even our best of actions still need to be purified. And so we're faced with this situation of either acknowledging that we have a problem or we suppress the truth ourselves. In Jeremiah's day, the people were saying, peace, peace. And the Lord was telling them, but there is no peace. There can't be any peace until your sins have been addressed. The good news is is that our sins can be addressed in and through Christ. That there can be peace with God when we see that our sins can be purified. We can be purged of our corruption. And that we can be made right in God's sight. But we need to realize the problem that we have committed. We need to realize that we have sinned against our God. Where are you at this morning? Are you someone who is uh, uh, angered by what Christ says and what he confronts us with? Are you someone that is uh, uh, willing to rethink matters? Or are you only alarmed by what Jesus uh, would suggest about us? Are you part of those who have been made pure in God's sight through the righteousness of Christ? and seek to live a life pleasing in his sight. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he exposed the corrupt worship of the people of God, and he accused them of repeating the sins of Jeremiah's day. They thought the temple would never be destroyed. It was. The people in Jesus' day thought the exact same thing. We have the temple, and the temple would be destroyed again. God's judgment came upon the corruption of the people's worship. And it was teaching them something. Not to put their trust in these outward things. But rather a contrite heart, a humble broken heart. God will not despise. But he will provide his mercy for them. And in Christ we see God's provision. He gives one who purges us from our sins and makes us clean in his sight. Jesus' cleansing of the temple then is something alarming. But it's alarming because it is facing us with the issue of sin and of the purpose of Christ's coming. He is going to defend the integrity and the honor of God even while he is making a people pure in God's sight. Are we pure? It's only in Christ that we can be made pure before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about this action of Christ, it would be one that ultimately causes us to realize our own need of cleansing. We pray, Lord, that we would be people who are humbled by your truth and not people who are uh, uh, put off or offended 
when it confronts us about our own problems. Help us, Lord, to realize that Jesus is the one who comes to purify the sons of Levi, the one who opens up a way uh, for the nations to offer up prayer and to find favor with the Lord, and ultimately the one who offers sacrifice to cover sin. So go before us, we pray in Jesus' name.